So last year, the uh, Blue Jays created a lot of fever amongst Canadians. Uh, that was a very successful year. Began building momentum in uh, mid-season when, with the trades that brought the all-star players. And it peaked in September and October in postseason play and almost went right to the World Series. And even casual fans were caught up with this. All across the country, people were aware that the Blue Jays were doing something special. And they, their hopes were, our hopes were, they would go all the way, not only to the World Series, but they'd win it all. And, and they did have the entire country watching and talking and dreaming. And this past spring, the Raptors did the same thing to us. Had us all uh, caught up and hoping and dreaming. And, and that created a lot of interest and a lot of uh, emotion, a lot of talk and, and all those things. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ had the people talking and watching during his three years of public ministry. Now, not the whole country, but there was a great deal of the population in Israel that were caught up in this. It had been building momentum. And we're going to be uh, in Matthew 21 this morning to follow that account. But it had been building momentum. And it had begun sort of with Peter's confession uh, in uh, Matthew 16 and Peter Jesus said who do you say that I am and Peter said we believe that thou art the Christ the son of the living God and and then Jesus went on to say you're right Uh, God's revealed this to you and then he went on to say that the son of man is going to go to Jerusalem he's going to be crucified and the third day rise again they didn't get that but Jesus was talking about that that journey uh, he, Peter had this confidence that Jesus was the Messiah. And then as they moved towards Jerusalem in the last week now leading up to the crucifixion, we look in at chapter 20, verse 17, and it gives us that sense of what was going on in the country. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. So they're on their way. Uh, They've been coming from Galilee area. So they're moving towards Jerusalem. Jesus knows where he's going. He's going to the cross. And as they make their way, they're joined by pilgrims from all over uh, the country that are going for the same reason for the Passover, for this high point in the Jewish calendar. It's the last week. And so as they are joined with these other pilgrims that are going on, it's a growing stream of people. Now, I live in Paris, so it helps me to... I know where the Grand River begins, way up past uh, north. And and, uh, we drove one day and we saw just this little trickle said Grand River. And so that's kind of what this was like. People from the farthest, remotest areas were beginning to make the journey to time it so they'd be in Jerusalem for this high festival of Passover. And as they went along, others joined them. So you have this, these people, many of them who had met Jesus up in Galilee. And so they're coming along to Jerusalem. In verse 29 of chapter 20, uh, we read that as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, now they've come close to it, a large crowd followed him. And so that's beginning to build. And so when we come to chapter 21 and verse 1, 
as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. So this is as he comes in, and we call this the triumphant entry. It's Palm Sunday in our calendar. Now, Jesus' fever that had been building, and people were enamored with him because he could do miracles, he multiplied meals, and he healed people, that's going to transition to, into Messiah fever as the as they Hosanna prayed moves into Jerusalem. Now, what's happening here seems out of character for Jesus. Because remember, all through his three years, he, he kind of kept in the shadows, and he told people, uh, don't tell anybody who I am. And he would not allow himself to be swept up with the population after he had fed the thousands of people with the bread. They wanted to make him king right there, and he just slipped away. He, he was not interested in getting all this attention. Now, it seems out of character because he's going to come into Jerusalem with an entourage in a huge parade with a great uh, deal of, uh, of celebration. So what's going on? Of course, we know in hindsight what's going on. We know where it's all going to end up. Now, I want us to think of this morning that the king is coming. And that's what this is all about in this passage. The king is coming to present himself to the nation in the capital. The first mention of Jesus as being the king is way back at his birth. You remember the wise men came from the east and they came to Herod and said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And we don't hear king from that point on till we get to this point. And that's next mention then is in our text. But let me uh, uh, look in verse five and then we'll just pick this out. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you. So this is the second time when there's any mention of Jesus referring to him as king. Now, we have to appreciate this is when we when we read this, we think, well, Matthew was walking along and he was writing this down, you know, uh, word for word as it was unfolding is not the case. Matthew is writing in retrospect years after, several years after, and he's putting it all together now. So he's looking back and, and he's writing this. In fact, in, in John's gospel in chapter 12, verses 12 to 16, in the same passage, it says the disciples didn't understand this until after he had risen. And then it made sense to them. So appreciate this, that there's a lot of unknown going on. Matthew didn't even understand totally what's going on but he's writing later with understanding. So as we, as we get into our text, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem in this prophetic way and he's saying, your Messiah is here, your King is here, I'm here. Now, we're going to see that he's fully in charge, uh, that he orchestrates the parade and the details, and he's lighting the flame of nationalism amongst the Jewish people and the expectancy of a Messiah because that had been their their lifelong dream, but he's not going to accept it. He's going to raise it when they, when they start to get a sense of it, and then he's not going to accept it. So what he's doing is he's pushing the buttons of the Jewish people so that they at least will acknowledge who he is. But you see, he's the one who is, first of all, going to be rejected. And after he rose again, Luke's account is, 
the disciples, he came alongside a couple of the disciples as they were going and they couldn't understand what had happened. And he said, he opened the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures at the end of the Gospel of Luke. And he says, don't you know that the Son of Man, the Messiah, was to suffer first? And that's what all of this is leading to. So let's listen to what Jesus was saying as he rode into Jerusalem in this way. Because he's saying the king is coming. So let me read the text, the first five verses. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now, right, now Matthew is saying after the effect, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is saying, I'm your king. I'm the Messiah. I'm your king. And this is emphasizing his royalty. And he, Matthew quotes then from Zechariah's prophecy and saying, your king is coming to you. That's what Zechariah was saying. There's going to be a point when your king is going to come to you. Uh, say to the daughter of Zion, so hundreds of years earlier, the daughter of Zion, that's the Jewish nation, and the nation's king, your king, Jesus is making this open declaration without saying a word. He's making this declaration. I'm your king. And he comes in this humble appearance. He's mounted on a donkey colt. Now, that wasn't the usual uh, animal that a king would ride in on. This was sort of a smart car compared to a Cadillac or a Hummer or whatever you want to, to call it. This was very... Very humble. And what was Jesus saying? Like this was his dramatic press release. Just by coming and riding in this way without saying a word. He's saying, I'm your predicted king. And I'm here to take my rightful place as your king. We were not there. We're 2000 years later. But Jesus says the same thing to us today. He's our king. He says, I'm with you always. And he sits on the right hand of the majesty on high. As we begin the book of Hebrews, as we've already gotten into it, Hebrews 1 verse 3 talks about Jesus seated beside at the right hand of the majesty on high. When Peter recollects their experience with the with the seeing the Lord Jesus in person. And I'm reading from 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, he describes this. 2 Peter 2, 1 verse, 1 verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty his royalty for he received honor and glory when God, the father uh, spoke saying from the majestic glory saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the apostle Paul describes his majesty that he was raised from the dead 
and seated far above all authority and powers in that great passage in Philippians two, that he submitted himself to death and God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's royalty. That's kingship that he's saying to us today. Anything that's happening in your life. He has control over. He's the king. He's an authority. And we're citizens of Jesus kingdom. We are in a kingdom. He's our king. Uh, it, the hymn, Be Thou My Vision, has a verse that says, High King of Heaven. And that reflects and acknowledges that he is our king. He is the one that we owe our allegiance to above anything and everyone else. Now, we have to have allegiances to, to our workplace, to various uh, organizations, but there is a higher allegiance than he is to have above anyone else and everything else. And that's what brings things to a head. That's the watershed. When there are things in our life when we have to make decisions, sometimes hard decisions, what matters most? Where is my allegiance? And he says, I'm your king. Jesus was also saying in so many words, without saying a word, I'm Messiah, your God. So as as he demonstrates this Old Testament prophecy, he's he's demonstrating his deity, his his uh, divinity. Notice again, he comes in and you and I could not do this unless we'd made previous arrangements. But we don't believe Jesus made previous arrangements. He said, uh, now go on ahead of me, sent to the disciples, go into this village and you're going to to find there a donkey tied there in a colt. And I want you to untie it and bring it back. If anybody challenges you, you say the Lord has need of him and they will let let you let you take them. And that that happened. So. He's giving these specific directions where to get an unridden donkey, what to say to the owners. And he's showing who he really was, that he's all knowing, he's all powerful. We're so far removed from seeing Jesus in person that we sometimes lose sight of that. That he's all knowing and he's all powerful, like he could command the waves and the sea to be still and instantly they would be still because he is divine. He is God in person. And that's what Jesus was showing them. This was God in action in very human ways saying, there's a cult there. You'll find it. Bring it back. Here's what you need to say. Full authority over, over everything. And Jesus had claimed this for himself. I and the father are one. We're equal. And so as he comes into Jerusalem and he's riding on this donkey, uh, the disciples in verse 6 went and did as Jesus had instructed them and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on it and he's riding in. Now, I'd like to look at Luke chapter 19 just as a parallel to give a little different flavor here. Luke 19:36. As they went, went along, the people spread their cloaks on the road 
And when he came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen and saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they're offering him what he deserves. He is God. And they're offering him worship and praise that God deserves. What does Jesus say to us today? I'm God. When we come to worship him, we need to understand and, and be aware of we're, we're worshiping God and when we're worshiping Jesus. He's the person who knows all things, as Psalm 139 talks about. You know, he knows when I get up and when I sit down. He knows what I'm going to say before it comes to my mind. And there's nowhere I could escape or be shut away or have something happen to me where God is shut out. And he said, I'll never leave you. And he's the one that desires our worship and praise. So as we live our life, remember, we're living and following Jesus. We're following God in person. And as we come to the people's response now, as we read on in verse six, so the disciples go out. They did as Jesus had instructed them and, and they find this colt and they answer the, the person and so on. So they bring the donkey and the colt. They place their cloaks on them and Jesus sat on, on the cloaks. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The crowds, uh, when the, Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowd answered, and their answer is very telling. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So what were they doing when they spread their coats on the ground? Was that just an, a nice gesture? Well, when you look in the in the Old Testament in Second Kings nine, uh, Jehu was a person who was told by the prophet he was to become king, and it was kind of a hasty hasty last minute announcement. And when he told his followers that he was to be the king, immediately it says they they took their coats off and made a little platform for him. So this is symbolic of submitting to the king, to the, to the sovereign that's now in their life. And that's what G these people are doing, even though they may not have understood all the dynamics and all the inferences from this, they were symbolically expressing their submission to this sovereign person in their presence. And now they're spreading tree branches on the ground. Now, we understand from scriptures that palm branches are symbolic of Jewish nationality. So it's like the nation is is submitting to the king and and they're making this this special red carpet treatment for him. And then they're shouting Hosanna or please rescue us, save us. This is this is a, a song that they're singing. It's a it's a chant and it coincided with the beginning of the Passover week that celebrate the deliverance from Egyptian slavery. Remember, as they were leaving Egypt, they were to kill the lamb, spread the blood over the doorpost. And from that point on, 
Moses said, every anniversary, every year, you're to do this in remembrance of how God delivered you from Egyptian slavery. And so now Jesus is timing this as they come to celebrate the rescue from Egyptian slavery. The real deliverer is coming and they're singing songs that they may not fully understand, but it's coinciding with celebrating their Egyptian slavery. Now, they're celebrating Jesus as a Davidic king who would deliver them from Roman rule. And this phrase, he who comes, I understand, is actually a reference for Messiah. So instead of saying Messiah is coming, he who comes is a reference to uh, Jehovah. He's coming with Jehovah's blessing. These pilgrims would come every year from all over the empire. Every Passover week, they would come and that would be their hope. Maybe this is the year. Maybe this would be the time when Jehovah would come, the Messiah, and he would rescue us from this tyranny of being under Roman domination. Uh, it was their passion. And it was the same this year. But this year they had this different thing about them, and that is that Jesus is coming in and they respond because they know the scriptures and they're responding in this way. And they, they appeal to him to save them. Now, in Luke's account that we read earlier in chapter 19, there's a, the people seem to be all together on this and everybody's wanting, as if everybody wanted them, Jesus, to save them. But here's one little point that we, we know that really spells out the difference. As they come in and the people are all shouting these songs, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're, they're, they're giving tribute to you as the Messiah, as the, as the anticipated king, our deliverer. And they didn't want him. And Jesus said, Well, if they, if they keep quiet, the stones are going to sing this out in their place. You can't help it because I'm here. I am who I am. So they, Jesus tolerated this outburst of enthusiasm and praise because he knew at the end of the week in just five or six days, those chants of save us are going to be turned into crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. We don't want him. And it's a telling statement in Matthew's account that when the people say, the other people in the city who were not coming in with this, with this uh, entourage. They were in the city coming out to see what was going on. And they asked, well, well, who is this? And this was the nation's chance to identify who he was. But you notice what they say? Oh, this is just the prophet. He's just a prophet from a little town, you know, something like Burford or Princeton or Goebbels. <laughs> It's an insignificant place. He's, he's, that's, that was their concept. That's the, really their sense of identity of who he was. And they were verbalizing their own spiritual blindness about who he really was. They were singing things they didn't understand. But they were singing things that had been prompted because God was raising through Jesus this awareness 
of giving him honor as who he really was, and yet in their blindness, they couldn't. Perhaps it's like people who who are don't know the Lord, and they may come in on a worship setting, and they may sing songs of praise, but it it's just words. It doesn't really mean they don't they don't get that. But that was the whole nation. Now Jesus does a very telling thing without saying a word when we come to verse 17. He has entered into the temple. He's he's uh, cleaned it out. And then we read in verse 17, he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Symbolically, he was rejecting the nation. Jerusalem was like a living, a living entity. And he was rejecting that which was the heart of the Jewish nation. See, there's no, there was no middle ground about Jesus. And there is no middle ground about Jesus. Either he is the Lord or he's another prophet. He is either God or he is just another good man. He is either my Lord and Master or he's not. There's no... There's nothing in between. There's, there's no demilitarized zone. It's either we submit to him or we resist him. There's nothing in between. We, we don't sit on the fence. So Jesus is saying to us today, I'm your master. I am your master. And I am presenting myself for you to bow down to, to submit yourself to. He is our master whom we serve. Ephesians 6 verses 5 to 9 talking about, you know, masters and servants. He is our master whom we serve. And he invites our heart's submission to him as our Lord and master. So the key to this is Romans 12 where Paul says, because of all that Jesus has done for us, I plead with you, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. That is, in effect, that you come and you just lay on the altar and say, I'm yours. I lay myself before you. I submit to you. And then, and then our individual, our whole life becomes one of serving him. So in Romans 6, where it says, don't go on sinning any longer, Paul says in verses 12 and 13, he says, instead of, you giving your members of your physical body, you know, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your hands, your whole body, instead of giving individual members of your body to, to unrighteousness, yield your body parts to righteousness. Why? Because we're serving our master. And we are servants and our whole body, our whole being, everything about us, is to be lived out as a servant to him. And this is this makes life much more meaningful and fulfilling. So when I submit my life to Christ, I'm not on my own. It's not up to me any longer. The master is here. Now in this passage, as we come to kind of walk away from that, what Jesus is saying and what Matthew is saying, the king had come. 
And Jesus had made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem in fulfillment of these prophetic scriptures. And it was perfect timing. And one of the references I I read in that, that actually this time and on that time in history was the exact day when day when Daniel's 69th week came to a close. And the 70th week is, is still be, to be fulfilled. So it ran out. It was and God always times things just right. And so that's saying the king had come. But he had come to give his life as a sacrificial offering for the sins of the whole world. He came as a lamb. Not to be the lion of, of God. And Jesus made a prediction at the end of chapter 23 of Matthew. And he had said this uh, with a bleeding heart. And I think this was his spirit when he came into Jerusalem in this triumphant way. In Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. We're talking, you know, Jerusalem was like this entity of the Jewish nation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And even then they were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. So he was walking away from Jerusalem, from the heart of the nation. And then he says, Remember what they had said as he came into Jerusalem riding on the donkey? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He says, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say in the future, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So ultimately, there's going to be a day when they really understand it and they really mean it. And that's going to be the greeting that will be given to him in Jerusalem on a future day. And that's still to come. Because the king will come. He will come. Uh, he will make his full triumphant entry to Jerusalem one day in fulfillment of prophetic scriptures. And I want to read to you from Zechariah, which is just at the end of the Old Testament, just to give you the context for that. It's a picture of his triumph. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Now, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, uh, Matthew didn't quote that phrase, righteous and having salvation, because he wasn't coming to offer them deliverance at that time. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will announce that I will restore you twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. And make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. 
and the Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be like a full bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. They will sparkle in his hand like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. And Zechariah uh, pictures this ultimate completion on that day when he comes back. Not riding on a donkey, but riding on a war horse because he comes first to carry out judgment and then to rule in righteousness. What's the next thing we expect? Well, we believe, Associated Gospel Churches believe, and we believe here at The Rock, the next thing that we expect is that Jesus is going to come to catch away his people, the bride of Christ. The trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised incorruptible. And Paul talks about this in Thessalonians 4.16. And, and in, uh, also in Corinthians. So that's an um, uh, extraordinary event when we believe, as the scriptures say, first, the dead in Christ will rise, the dead in Christ being believers, the church then we which are living and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to be with the Lord in the air. That's to be our comfort. That's what we're looking for. So remember kind of the enthusiasm, the thrill about the Blue Jays and even the Raptors, how excited people were. And we kind of got caught up in that. If you're honest, even if you're casual, you probably got caught up a little bit in that. Translate that, transfer that. Envision one day, if the Lord comes in our time, we're going about our business. Maybe we're sleeping. Maybe we're sitting in church. Maybe we're driving home in the car and there's all kinds of scenarios that you can create about that. But in an instant... The trumpet of God will sound. And with a loud shout, the Lord will command the bodies of believers who are in the grave. And he will catch up the living believers in an instant. We don't have time to prepare. It will take place like that and we'll be with him forever. That's what we look for next. And so we can celebrate each day knowing, well, maybe it's today. And we want to live each day so that, as John says, we're not ashamed that it's coming. Because he is coming. He is coming for you and for me. And if you know him as your Savior, he's not going to forget you. If you're not sure that he's your Savior, then you can make sure by submitting your life to Christ, confessing him as your Savior, trusting his death on the cross for you and his resurrection to be your living Savior. If you have a question about that, you can, can talk to any one of us. We'd be glad to talk with you. But what we want to be people is are people who celebrate the presence of the king today and looking forward to that day when he comes again. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you that uh, you are in control. We don't know the day or the hour. We just know that you promised to return. 
And we thank you that you're preparing places in heaven for your people. And that you will come for us. Help us to live in that hope, in that confidence. That the king is here and he's coming back. We bless you and praise you today. Help us to honor you with our life. For Christ's sake, amen.